Today's reading is from Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of, the, of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it, is, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to open up the word with you this morning uh, and to look at the things that God has for us. So if you have your Bibles, turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. My family and I were gone on vacation last week, and uh, it was the first time that we've been away from Disciples Church since, it's, since it began, and we genuinely missed you. We talked about that uh, as we were gone last week. We missed being here with you. Um, Listen to Dave's sermon this week, was encouraged and blessed by it, and hope you were as well. Um, but glad to be back with you this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, just want to kind of give you an overview of where we've been. So we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. We started obviously in chapter one, and in those first three chapters of Ephesians, what you find is Paul taking pains to help you understand and realize who you are in Jesus Christ. I mean, the letter of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. It's a letter about the church and what the church ought to be. And so Paul begins this letter by by informing us, this is who Christ has made you to be because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the future hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You can be sure of the identity that that he's given you, that he's made you a new person. He's given you a new life, a new name, a new family. And so in the first three chapters, what Paul wants you to walk away understanding is who God has made you to be, who he intends you to be, and then leading into the last three chapters, he wants you to understand how then we are to live. 
that these two pieces of what Paul is addressing in the book of Ephesus are not disconnected, they're not divorced from one another, but rather who you are informs the way that you live. Who you are informs who it is that you're called to be. And so as we've been talking, beginning really two weeks ago and then working through the rest of the book, we're talking about how is it that we are to live as Christians? How are we to live as singles in this world? How are we to live as people who are married, as people maybe who have children? How are we to live within the context of our family? In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how we live in the context of the marketplace, in the context of our workplaces. But in order to understand everything, and in particular to understand what we're going to dive into this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, we need to understand the context in which this was originally written. See, Ephesus was a very large city. It sat in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus at the time was the capital city of that region. It was the largest city uh, in in Asia Minor at that point. And nearly 250,000 people lived in the city of Ephesus. Now, in our modern context, that makes a fairly mid-sized to large city. But at this time, this would have been a massive city. I mean, imagine 250,000 people all living in the kind of context where they would have needed to be able to walk anywhere they needed to get. I mean, you're talking about a really urban environment. And on top of all of that, this is the capital of power for the region. It's the capital of power for the Roman Empire in this region. And so it was the home to a lot of festivities. It was home to the Olympics. Uh, it, had, it had effects on all kinds uh, of different events that were going on in that place. And what we know historically is that it was also the home of a 25,000-seat amphitheater. I mean, to put that into context, that means that that amphitheater held more people than the Pfizer Forum holds today. I mean, this is a huge, massive construction. And on top of all of that, what set Ephesus apart from other cities was the centrality of its idols. So there were many gods that were worshipped within the context of Ephesus, but the primary god was a god named Artemis, or Diana, as she was otherwise called. And the temple to Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. I mean, this was a massive structure, a beautiful, ornate structure, and it was really the center of life and culture in the city of Ephesus. See, Diana, or Artemis, was the god of fertility. And you can begin to let your imagination run wild with what that meant in terms of the worship of that particular goddess. What it meant is that in order to worship her, you would go into the temple and you would join yourself with a prostitute that belonged to that temple. And in doing so, the Ephesians considered this to be worship to the god Diana. Now imagine a church of people gathered like this, sitting in one place who had all been saved out of that context. Imagine their histories and imagine the kind of change that would have taken place as they stepped into Christianity and began to cut out all of these things and that had previously marked them in their lives of the worship of the goddess Diana. And on top of all of that, because this was a, a center of governmental power in the Roman Empire, the emperor was, was additionally worshipped. I mean, the, the Roman emperors at this time were not, just, were not just revered as political leaders or military leaders. They were worshipped as demigods. And so for the Christians in this time to live as a believer, to have a life that was marked as one who knew Jesus Christ, and in particular to live within the context of a family and to raise a family in this environment was extraordinarily difficult. And that's why what we read in, the, in, in chapter 5 is really a pretty harsh 
uh, criticism or critique of the way that the Ephesians were living. What we find in these verses is actually a pretty harsh condemnation of lifestyles that these Christians had fallen back into. And so Paul's coming along to redirect them. He's coming along to point out the way that they ought to live. And really what you see him doing here is demonstrating his pastor's heart. He's discipling his people. And that leads us to verse 1, where Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So several weeks ago, I was at home, and, um, and, and I had both my cars pulled into my garage, and I was working on changing the oil. And my sons came out, and they were playing, and they were kind of watching me, and I could tell every once in a while they would stop what they were doing to see what I, see what I was doing, and they would come a little close to the car and kind of peek underneath. And so finally, I just pulled out a piece of plywood, and I slid it under the car, and I said, why don't you boys come down here with me, and you can kind of see what I'm doing. So I showed them, this is the oil filter, and this is where you, where you dump the oil from, and, and here's all of these different parts of the car, and here's how you change oil, and all these different things. And my, my oldest son, who's about to turn five, said, Dad, we're going to need to know this stuff when we become daddies. And I said, you are correct, and that is a very wise thing to say. And so for about the next hour, they helped me as I tried to change the oil. And their help is not actually all that helpful, uh, though they think it is. But it's, it's nice to have them around, and I enjoy being with them. But kind of the, the thing that made the day was hearing them go back inside and hearing them tell Jessica, we helped Daddy change the oil. It's just a sweet thing. It was neat to have them around. Now, the truth is they weren't all that helpful, but I enjoyed having them near me. Why? Because they're my sons. Because they are, in the words of Paul, Beloved. See, when you experience the love of the Father, it creates a desire to be like him. And the question that I would pose, not knowing where everybody is in terms of their spiritual walk or where they're at with Christ this morning, the question I would pose is, do you believe that God actually loves you in that sort of way? I think for Christians, one of the, one of the struggles that we have is when we think about God's love for us, we think, we think about it in a very academic sense. We understand that God made a sacrifice. We understand that he withdrew judgment from us. We, we understand that he has a form of love for us, but oftentimes we understand that God loves us, but we're not really sure if he likes us. You ever have that feeling? And what we're told in this passage is that without question, God loves us and enjoys being with his children because he considers us beloved that he not only loves you, but that he loves to spend time with you, that he loves to be with you, that he loves to be in your presence, that he loves to have you in his presence. And so the question becomes then, how are we then to imitate him? And look at verse two. Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now those, that verse is absolutely pregnant with meaning and we have to look at it in depth. But the real beginning question is this, how are we to walk in love? Because we're given that instruction, walk in love. What does that mean? Well, you see the key to understanding that in verse 1 where it says, therefore. Remember, we talked about this in the last chapter. Whenever you see that word, therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's that cliched little saying, but it's actually really helpful as we try to interpret Scripture. And what it does is it causes us to look back just a few verses into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted." Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, is your, is your willingness to continue to love people who are unlovely consistent with what you claim to believe about God's love? 
In other words, what would your relationships look like if you actually began to apply Ephesians 4.32 and Ephesians 5.2 to your life? What would it look like to have relationships with other people where you are treating them in kindness, forgiving them, tenderhearted in your approach because God in Christ forgave you? Or to reference verse 2 again, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And we see two motivations in this verse to love. The first motivation is this, that we are to love in order to emulate Christ. And that's what he says when he says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So to put this in a real practical sense and to give an illustration, I mean, imagine, if you will, a married couple. I've sat with a lot of married couples over the years who've, who've had um, marital issues, who've had strife in their relationship, who who've come to me and given me the conversation, the phone call, where they've said, hey, um, me and my wife are going to get divorced, but we figured we'd try to meet with you first. Okay, all right, well, it's, that's a really great place to start that conversation, right? We're already set on this, but we're going to have one more conversation first. But what's amazing is, inevitably, as I walk into those conversations and as I walk into those relationships, what I, what I find is that most often you have two people who do not understand love in this sense, Their idea of love, and to use the application of Ephesians 4.32, their idea of forgiveness is that it is something doled out on the basis of the way that you have behaved. In other words, I will love you to the degree that you deserve to be loved. I will forgive you to the degree that I find your apology adequate. I will love you so long as you deserve it. And the problem is when we when we interact with people in that way, and whether it's within the context of a marriage, this particular illustration, or whether it's in the context of any other relationship that you might have, coworkers or families or siblings or kids, whatever the context is, I mean, imagine what your relationships would begin to look like if you began to love out of an emulation of the way that Christ loves you and gave himself up for you. Because to quote one pastor, when we interact with others, we need to remember that we are first sinners and second sinned against. And the problem we have in the context of, for instance, that marriage illustration is we walk into the relationship viewing ourselves as righteous, viewing ourselves as innocent, and therefore we stand grieved at the way that we have been treated by other people. And the invitation of this text is to view yourself first as a sinner who has been forgiven. And understanding that God has called you to love and forgive others because he has loved and forgiven you exponentially more than he is asking you to love and forgive others in your life. Imagine how transformative that idea is when it begins to take root in our hearts. When you begin to see that you are first a sinner who's been forgiven and you are second someone who's been sinned against And this is not primarily the way that we view our relationships with others. We view our relationships with others through the lens of the way that we've been sinned against. But long before you were sinned against, you were a sinner. And if you can remember that you are first a sinner who received great love and forgiveness, the hurts and the pains that others can inflict on you will will pale in comparison. Now, that doesn't mean there's not pain in marriage. It doesn't mean that there's not need for all kinds of restoration and counseling. It doesn't mean that that forgiveness is easy. It doesn't mean any of those things, but what it means is that it's possible. And he describes this as tender-hearted forgiveness. You see an approach here that's soft, an approach that's gentle in its attitude, that when you see the beauty 
of the sacrifice, the sweetness, the presence of Jesus Christ, when you see the tenderheartedness of his forgiveness towards you, it multiplies in your life. You are imitating your father. See, what we know is that God's love never terminates on itself. It's always reproducing, it's always multiplying, it's always expanding, and your call as a Christian is first to love as you've been loved. So we love first to emulate Christ, but second, we love and look at this as an offering and a sacrifice. I mean, this is right in line with Romans chapter 12, which talks about the idea that everything in our life is done within the context of worship. In the same way, this verse is saying that love is is done not only for the way that it makes other people feel, not only for the restoration or, or maintenance of a relationship, but that love inherently is an offering and a sacrifice to Christ. And so the reason that it is so hard to love people who don't reciprocate your love or who do not deserve your love is that they don't recognize it or appreciate it. And so the question comes into our minds, well, then why even continue loving? And the answer that Paul wants to give us in this text is to say that it's because your sacrificial love is a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. I remember years ago hearing a pastor say it this way. He said it would be like, it would be like you talking to somebody with whom you've had a lot of conflict and a lot of issues, and as you look into their eyes, it's like you're looking right through them into the eyes of Jesus Christ. See, your husband or wife, your children or parents, the boyfriend or girlfriend, that longtime friend you've had, they may or may not deserve your love, and they may or may not deserve your forgiveness, but you know who does deserve your love? is Christ. And so when you demonstrate love to someone who is inherently unlovely, Paul is saying it's as, it's as if it's a sacrifice and an offering to God. See, our love is always a response to the gospel. It is never, therefore, a waste to love someone, even if they do not reciprocate. And he continues with this idea in verse 8. He says, therefore, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So first he says, walk in love, and now he says this, walk in light. And when he talks about this idea of discernment here, I'm going to give you the, the, the definition that Tim Keller gave about this because I think it's such a helpful one. When the Bible talks about discernment, what it's really saying is it's talking about applying the light of the gospel to the particular circumstances of your life. See, a lot of people have called the Bible a map to your life or a guidebook to your life, and the truth is if that's all the Bible is, it's really not that effective as a tool. Because there are all kinds of decisions that you need to make in your life and there's all kinds of relationships that are struggling in your life and there's all kinds of things that are going to come across your path that the Bible does not specifically speak to. But there are principles and truths. There's rightness applied to our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what this is calling us to do when it talks about discernment is apply the light of the gospel to the particular circumstances of your life. So let me just apply it this way because this kind of informs everything else Paul is going to say in these verses that we'll read today. Applying the light of the gospel to the particular circumstances. So you remember that as we began Ephesians chapter 4, we talked about the idea that Paul says, I want you to grow up in knowledge of Christ. I want you to grow into mature manhood. I want you to grow into mature adults and believers in Christ. And we talked about that example of a little child who's first learning to walk and so you kind of hold their hands and you lead them along and they kind of get one foot in front of the other and they watch you as you walk trying to figure out exactly how you do it. 
But beginning last week, Paul shifts the illustration from describing new life in Christ as a young child to fixing what was broken in the lives of the Ephesian believers. So I remember being in college and playing basketball uh, one day, and uh, as I was running down the court, I I jumped up to try to block somebody who was taking a shot, and when I landed, I could kind of feel my knee give, and I fell to the ground, and so I went to hop up, and immediately I fell again. I was like, oh no, something something is not right. And so as I hobbled off the court and I eventually got into the hospital, I found out that I had a partial tear in my ACL. Now, partial tear is not as severe as a, as a full tear, but it, it takes a lot longer for it to heal because of the, uh, the way that you have to deal with it with physical therapy and all those things. And I just remember for weeks kind of having to hobble along through life, waiting, waiting for my body to mend. See, it's one thing to teach a child how to walk, but it's another thing entirely for you to walk with an injury that obstructs your abilities. And the Ephesian Christians in this moment are behaving in a way that's inconsistent with their new identity. And so what Paul is doing in these verses, beginning in verse 3, is he is setting the bone. He's re-breaking something that already hurts so that it can mend up correctly. And notice the language that he says. Verse 3. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And when he uses that word saints, what he's speaking to, again, is your identity. He's saying, don't even let these things be spoken about in your midst. Don't even let these accusations be made about your life. Do not put yourself in a position where somebody could get a handle on your life because they see a failure in the way that you behaved regarding these areas. And the reason he's, the reason he's saying this is not so that you, can, that you can make your identity in Jesus Christ. It's because you've been given a new identity. And therefore, to live this way is to live out of love of who God has made you to be. And it's important to understand this because God explains through the course of the Bible the proper role of sex in our lives. So I mean, the way that the Bible describes it frequently is this idea that, that there is a joining together of a man and a woman within the confines of covenantal marriage. And understand that each one of those words in that sentence is vitally important. It's the joining together that you have become one flesh in the language of Genesis. The joining together of a man and a woman within the confines of covenantal, committed, sacrificial marriage. That physical oneness, sexual unity, is something that grows out of relational oneness. And what Paul is going to say is that when you begin to engage in any kind of sexual sin, when you begin to engage in anything sexually outside of the relationship of a husband and a wife, you are betraying the purpose for which sex was created. And to put this in broad scope, when he uses that word sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. That's where we get our word pornography. It's where we get our word fornication. And this is a junk drawer term that references any kind of sexual sin. So sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount expands the understanding of what these things are and says not only is it those particular acts, but it also includes your impure thoughts. When you begin to think lustfully about someone, when you begin to, in the words of this verse, covet someone that does not belong to you. And notice the kind of language that Paul applies to this in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, 
has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, he's saying when you begin to act out on those impulses and when you, are not, when you don't have the self-discipline that God has called you to have, you are living as one who is not part of the family of God. And the warning for the Christian here, or for those who would think that they're Christians in this moment, is that if you are able to consistently, unrepentantly engage in that behavior, it is an indication that you may not know Christ at all. Now understand, he's not saying here that if you, if you commit one of these sins, you lose your salvation, nor is he saying that the committing of one of these sins is inherently an indication that you don't know Christ, but he's talking here about a consistent, unrepentant engagement in these sins, that you cannot, as a matter of lifestyle, live this way and know Christ. That if you live this way and there's no ping of conscience, if there's no prick on the heart, that it is an indication that you need to search out your own salvation, as Paul would later say in the book of Philippians, with fear and trembling. See, this is something that our culture at large and a lot of churches uh, have disregarded entirely. So we've redefined what sex is, we've redefined what gender is, we've redefined what those relationships look like, we've redefined when those uh, particular sexual acts are to be played out within the context of marriage or outside of it. And so a lot of churches and a lot of cultures have completely disregarded this teaching as being antiquated or silly or that it's instruction that was limited to a certain period of history. But notice what Paul then says as if he's anticipating the objections of Christians 2,000 years later. Look what he says in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, you cannot explain your way out of this instruction. You do not get to disregard this as something that is antiquated or something that was meant for one specific culture, but rather it was meant for all time. And he's going to go so far as to say, don't be deceived by empty explanations. For because of these things, in verses 3 through 5, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. God is taking this pretty seriously. And he's saying, don't be drawn away by people who who explain away the scriptural mandate concerning these things in favor of what's culturally accepted. But then he continues, verse 7. Here's the reason why we don't participate. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. I mean, notice his argument here. He says it's not that you're just in the light. It's not just that you're walking in the light. It is that you have become light. Your identity has changed. Don't participate because you are now light. So here's the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a great 20th century Anglican preacher, here's the way that he laid it out. He said, if you want to understand what it means to be righteous in this context, if you want to understand what it means to live in the way that God has called you, think of a solar system. See, everything that God does orbits around what is right. He said it earlier in this text, around those things that are true, around those things that are just, around those things that are right. That everything that God does is true and just and right. That everything he declares, everything he decides, everything that he uh, ordains is good and right and true. And and, and Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, now compare that to the way that your life orbits. What is the sun at the center of your solar system? Around what things does your life turn? What's the, what's the linchpin? 
What is the reason behind the the base level understanding upon which everything else is built? And is it right and is it true? Because what we're told in this verse is that that is what God does. So when we talk about being light, what we mean among other, what we talk rather about God being light, what we mean about what we mean among other things is that God is inherently good, that everything he does is full of light, it's full of truth and beauty and clarity, that what he declares for you is not to try to keep away something good from you that he knows you'll enjoy, but he's putting those parameters around you to protect you, realizing that there is a far greater and deeper joy that he intends for your life than you can possibly imagine. And when we begin to view these prohibitions as God keeping us from something that we would enjoy or keeping us from something good, we have completely misunderstood God's intention and purpose because he has something far greater and far more joyful and far more fulfilling that he intends for us. And likewise, when we talk about the world being darkness, What we mean is that it's full of unrighteousness, right? It's full of sin. It's full of untruths. It's full of falsehood. We also mean that the world is in confusion. In the same way that light brings clarity, darkness brings confusion. And what Paul is going to say in this text is that Christian conversion is the way that we move from one realm to the other. That when you came to know Jesus Christ, it wasn't just the beginning of a process where you became more Christ-like in your attitudes and actions, though it certainly is that, but that you were actually moved from death to life. So when Paul in this text says, awake, O sleeper, what he's talking here is about here is the power of the resurrection that has come into your life, that he has made alive what was once dead, that he is not making bad people good, and he's not making immoral people moral He is making dead people alive. And that everything is transformed in the light of that resurrection. And what he wants you to understand is that the physical sins in which we participate always have a spiritual source. See, Paul wants you to understand this because what he's declaring to people who claim Christianity is that you are in a battle for your soul. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he talks about covetousness. Now certainly he means covetousness within the context of relationships, but I think there's also a broader application for it because he goes on to say this is idolatry. And just think about this within the context of your own life. I mean, think back to your family. Think back to your, uh, to your upbringing and the things that your family valued. What is it in the context of the way that you grew up that you were taught was good and valuable and true and real? In other words, what defines success in your family? For some of you, it may have been success in, in a career that you've you know, moved up the corporate ladder. For others, it was a particular lifestyle that your family expected you to attain. For others, it was a particular way that you were going to live in light of your community or in light of, uh, in light of broader culture. Uh, it may have been particularly around money or accomplishment or education or family, but there are all these expectations that were put on us and in which we've, we imbibed growing up. And, and what Paul is going to say in this moment is, in what area of your heart and life have you become covetous? And so for some of you, you may say, well, I make a modest income. I'm not, I'm not rich by any stretch. I don't live above my means. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a decent amount in the bank. I'm not, I'm not buying flashy things. But is it possible maybe that in your heart 
there's an element where security has become an idol. Or maybe it's not flashiness or wealth, but maybe for you it's, I want to feel like I'm in control. Maybe it has nothing to do with money at all, but maybe it's within the context of relationships. Maybe you saw relationships growing up that you wanted to emulate, and now that you're in a marriage, and now that you have a family, your life just isn't matching up with what you saw or what you expected or what you hoped things would be. And so you look at somebody else's relationship, someone else's marriage, someone else's family, and you say, why couldn't I have that? See, when you do that, Paul is going to say, you have become an idolater. You've taken the hopes and the expectations that only God himself can fulfill and you put them onto other people. You put them onto other things. And as if that wasn't enough, we live in a culture and in a time where we are under constant bombardment by advertising and social media, where we are given promises of fulfillment that never fulfill. Now look, as Paul begins to lay out the solution, to all of these issues. He says, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So this is a call to wisdom. This is a call to discernment, which is wisdom in the areas of life that the Bible doesn't specifically address. And Paul's going to give us at least one example of, how, of what he means by this. And he gives it in verse 18. In a rather strange verse, this is what he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever stopped to actually consider what that verse means or why the verse is uh, phrased that way, but at at initial glance, this is a strange comparison. This is actually a rather strange verse. I mean, why of all things is Paul bringing up drunkenness here, and why is he contrasting it to being filled with the Holy Spirit? Those seem like, they seem like non sequiturs, that there's no relationship between the two. But the truth is, there must be some way in which being drunk is like being filled with the Spirit, or he wouldn't have said it. And there must also be some way in which it's unlike. Because there would be no need for the warning that he gives about not getting drunk if it was dissimilar. And there would not be no need for comparison if it wasn't similar. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there are two opposite ways of handling life. And he's going to illustrate it through the abuse of alcohol. And here's what he says. He says, alcohol, when it's abused, inherently what we know about it is it's a depressant. Not in that it gets you depressed, but that it... It closes down certain pathways of the way that you think and the way that you act, the way that you feel, the way that you behave. It dulls your senses. It lowers your inhibitions. That alcohol depresses your ability in that moment when you're drunk to take in truth. And this is ultimately why people get happy. Because they're blocking out parts of the truth that are making them unhappy. They're blocking out elements of their life. They're blocking out moments of reality in order for them to become less real. See, drunkenness, he goes on to say, leads to debauchery. In other words, leads to all kinds of behavior. He's literally comparing this to animalistic tendencies that you are just functioning in a way that is that is just responding to the base needs that you have as a human being and there is no discernment and there's no self-control and there's no judgment happening in this moment that you are making poor decisions, unwise actions 
Because when you're drunk, it allows you to not feel. And what he's, what he's indicating by comparing being drunk with being filled with the Holy Spirit, he's comparing and contrasting these ideas because he's, because he's saying when you have the Holy Spirit, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, when you are so cognizant of the presence and the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your being, when you are so aware of the goodness of the gospel, of the indwelling presence of the Spirit as he convicts and transforms and challenges and changes your heart and mind, the Holy Spirit functions not as a depressant but a stimulant. All of a sudden, you become hyper-aware of what is going on in this world, of what's going on in your life, in happenings all around us, that your mind, your intellect, your heart, your will are all experiencing truth on a far deeper level. In other words, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, truth is not hidden, it is shown. The Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't lead us like drunkenness does into these animalistic tendencies, but it makes us more and more human as he forms us into the image of Christ as he sharpens our senses and leads us into what God intends for us the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the promises of the gospel that in the moment when life has become so difficult and so overbearing that your tendency is to turn to substance for comfort you turn instead to the one who controls Everything. That in that moment, he gives you self-control. See, here's why this verse is really a hinge for everything that's about to follow. Because without this verse, and without the first three chapters of this book, you would have been left with all kinds of instructions on how to live your life. No more lust, no more sexual immorality, knock it off with the drunkenness, Stop doing all of these things, but you would have no power to actually live that way. And understand this, trying to imitate God our Father without the power of the Holy Spirit is not a blessing, it's a curse. To try to live as God instructs us to, without the new life that only Jesus Christ, through the application of the Holy Spirit, can give, is not something that brings freedom, it's something that brings bondage. Because all of a sudden you have a standard that you cannot attain by yourself. But the Holy Spirit indwells you to apply the work of Christ to your heart, to enable you to live in victory. So here's the question. How do we get this Holy Spirit filling? Because I don't think he's talking here about some miraculous second work. And I don't think he's talking here about some mere experience, though certainly experience is part of what we have in our humanity. But I think we can look for an example in Psalm 51. If you remember Psalm 51, this is the passage that David writes immediately after his sin with Bathsheba is found out. Now think about where this man is living in this moment. He's just committed adultery. He's broken his marriage vows. He's helped another woman who was already married break her marriage vows as well. He's the king of the country. He's also God's representative to the people in this moment. On top of that, he's supposed to be leading his men into the battle, but instead he's stayed back in the city. In other words, he shirked his responsibilities both before God and before his country. And as if all that wasn't enough, in order to hide his sin, in order to hide what he had done with Bathsheba, he gave instruction to have Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. 
So now he's added murder to the list of things of which he's guilty. And in Psalm 51, after he's been found out for his sin, David goes to the Lord in prayer. And by the way, can I just say that I love that Scripture records these sorts of things for us. I love that David, who had the Psalms recorded, didn't have this part scrubbed to make himself look better. But in this moment, he pours himself out before God. And look what he says. He says, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He cries out in desperation. The Holy Spirit had been applied to him in the Old Testament when the the anointing of oil had come upon him that he was now leading this country. The Holy Spirit indwelled him and, and in this moment he is deathly afraid. He's afraid because he'd sinned. And the Spirit of God is holy. It cannot dwell with sin. And David knew that. He knew that in this moment he deserved to be abandoned. He deserved to be rejected. And he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And God, in his grace, kept the Holy Spirit with him, even though he deserved abandonment. And a thousand years after that happened, David's offspring, Jesus Christ, his own descendant, who was perfect and sinless, who lived to be 33 years old without ever violating the law. And not only the written law, but the law of conscience, the law that was written on his heart, the perfect law of God. And as that same Jesus Christ went to the cross, if you remember, it's recorded that he cries out at one point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you understand what he's saying in that moment? He's crying aloud with David, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Don't remove your presence. Don't leave me here. But in that moment, God did leave him. We're told that God the Father turned his back on the Son. And that the hell that David was trying to avoid by requesting the Holy Spirit not be removed from him, Jesus Christ in that moment experienced fully. And why did he do all that? Because Jesus Christ was standing in our place. He was taking upon himself what David and what we deserved. And he was doing it so that like David, you would experience the ever-present help of the Holy Spirit. That you would never have to live in a moment where you wonder, is God going to pull his spirit from me? Have I gone too far this time? Have I done just enough to lose what Jesus Christ purchased? And the answer comes back from heaven resoundingly, no. No because my son did for you what you couldn't do yourself. He experienced for you what you deserved so that you'd never have to walk through it. Does that set your soul on fire in praise and thankfulness towards God? Because if all of this is just unmoving to you, if it's so familiar that it's become rote, 
then you have forgotten grace. So are you having trouble loving other people? Are you using people instead of pouring yourself out for them? If you are, it's because you've forgotten the grace that saved you. It hasn't humbled you. Just look what Jesus Christ accomplished for you. Look until it begins to change and transform your very nature. Because in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, first you have to be filled with Christ. And in that moment when you come to know Jesus Christ, you are in that same moment given the Holy Spirit who indwells you and empowers you, who convicts and encourages, who walks with you and who never leaves you. But understand that if you're struggling in this moment or in this morning with what this means, what you really need is time alone with him. Like a beloved child who just wants to sit in the presence of their father without trying to be trite, who just wants to change the oil with dad. That consistently throughout the day, do you have time set aside where you're in the word? Do you have moments in the middle of your day devoted to prayer and being with your father? Maybe just sitting silent in his presence. Away from the din of your office or your work. Away from the moment when you're carting kids. Do you have time to just soak in the truth of the gospel and the presence of God? To study it, to know it, to meditate and this is a hard thing for us because everyone in here has been indoctrinated with the theology of this world. And we've allowed the philosophies and the thinking of this world to dominate our minds and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the, Spirit, the experience of his work and his presence is the truth made real in your life. It's theology, but not cold and uncaring. It's living and vibrant. It means reading and praying and sitting in silence before the Lord. It means repenting and resting and walking with others who know and love you. And understand that in order for that to happen, you need more than what you just experienced here on Sunday. I think there's no better way to end this service than with communion together. Because communion serves as a visible sign and symbol of the things that we've just talked about. It serves as a visible emblem of what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. So when we come and we partake in the wine or the juice, as the case may be, we are in that moment remembering the blood that was shed by Jesus on our behalf. And when we take the bread together, we're remembering that his body was torn apart. We're also remembering that he has given us new life. But let's pray and then we'll go to a moment of silence. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for who you are. We thank you for your shed blood and your body that was given on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't stay on that cross and you didn't stay dead, but that you rose from the dead, applying new life to our hearts. And so as we come to this table this morning, Lord, we pray that we would understand in a new and real way this morning the goodness of our God. We desire to be like you, not out of the means of trying to earn anything from you, but born out of the new life that we've already been given. And we'll give you praise and honor and glory for it.